John chapter 17, again, verse 20 is where I'll start reading. Jesus prays. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. When I was in high school and I got my driver's license, I began hanging out at, uh, at my friends' homes more frequently. And I remember distinctly the mother of one of my friends saying to me as I spent more and more time in their home, you've been here three times now. What's ours is yours. Don't bother asking if you need anything. Just go and take it. That was an approach that I was unfamiliar with. Now, it was one of great hospitality, but one that I was unfamiliar with. And to be fair, she was mainly talking about food because I was in high school and what high school guy isn't mainly concerned about food. But there was a kindness embedded in what she said. It's uh, what's mine is yours attitude. What is in front of us is is something that, uh, that belongs to all of us. And of course, there was some uncertain or unspoken boundaries. Uh, they didn't have to be said. It would probably not have been uh, well looked on if uh, if I took the car out of the garage, or if I uh, or if I started uninstalling a window. The intent of what she said there was that uh, the pizza rolls and the Oreos I didn't need to ask; they were mine. I got to take them. It was clear that their house was a place designated for me and for outsiders when they came in. Uh, they were meant to feel comfortable, they to feel at home. What was, the, what was theirs was mine. In this final portion of Jesus' prayer here in John 17, again, Jesus is praying for all believers, all who would throughout time put their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. You'll remember that in verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for himself. And in verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his disciples. That's what we considered last last week. And now this morning's text, for all who would believe. You see that right away in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, these only being the disciples that Jesus is praying for. Not only these ones, these 11 who are still here, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Friends, we are the beneficiaries of faithful men and women passing the gospel down from generation to generation. We can trace our lineage, our spiritual uh, uh, lineage, all the way back to the men to whom Jesus was, was praying for here. Jesus is about to go to the cross. 
This prayer comes right before Jesus goes to the cross. He is praying knowing that his once and for all sacrifice for all people was about to take place. And again, friends, we've said this multiple times throughout our time in John 17, but it should not be lost on us that the final thing that Jesus does before this act, this final act of his mission here on earth unfolds, is that he prays. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for you, and he prays for me. He prays for all who would believe. This particular section of the text, though, is startling. There's something here that's startling, and maybe when you read it, you didn't catch it, but I want to spend most of our time thinking about how startling what Jesus prays is actually. All, this is what he prays. He prays that all that he has and the result of what he has done, everything that is given to him is now given to us. All that Jesus has, he has given to us. The scripture reading this morning from John chapter, uh, excuse me, uh, from Romans chapter 8, where Paul is writing about uh, this very thing. When he comes to Romans chapter 8, verse 32, we didn't quite get there in our text this morning, in the scripture reading, but what Paul writes is, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What Jesus has, he has given to us. In our union, our being joined to Christ by faith, our being joined to Christ, our union with him, has the effect of making us the beneficiaries of everything that Jesus possesses. This is startling, and the reason it's startling is because Jesus is the king over all things. He is the king of the universe. There is not one corner of creation, not one small molecule, not one distant planet that isn't under his rule and reign. And yet, for us who are joined to him by faith, Every single thing that is his is also ours. It's all given to us. In a few minutes, we'll, we'll flesh this out, but I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the question that I want you to keep filed away in your mind as we consider what Jesus prays here in this text is, do we, do we get that? Does that actually compute for us? Maybe not. That's fine. But let's consider what Jesus actually prays here and how it affects us, genuinely affects us, the reality that all things in him have been given to us. So in this passage this morning, in verses 20 through 26, two things that Jesus prays for all believers that will guide our time together. First, we explored this a little bit at the end of our time last week, but I want to see how Jesus continues to pray for it. The first thing is this, unity. The unity that Jesus prays for believers. And the second thing that we'll get to in a minute is that Jesus prays that all who are his, all who belong to him, would be with him. Those who believe would be with Jesus. So again, first, the unity that comes for those who are joined together with Christ, and then the reality that Jesus prays for those who would believe that they would be with him. So, let's first consider the unity 
that Jesus prays for believers. Jesus prays that his disciples would have unity. And now he prays that all believers would have unity. Now, as I think about this passage in John chapter 17, oftentimes this is used more like a sledgehammer than it is a a gracious invitation. Oftentimes we come to John chapter 17, and you might have heard this wielded when people are in some sort of argument with one another within the local church to say, but look, you're supposed to be united. It's not at all what the intent of what is going on here. Jesus is not praying in this way. He's not giving us a convenient proof text to beat our friends over the head when they disagree with us. It's not what he's doing. What we have to do is consider the nature of Christian unity. We have to understand what is actually at the heart of what's being said or what Jesus is praying for here. We live, in order to do that, let's think about our own context first. We live in a world that is deeply tribalistic. Deeply tribalistic. If you head down to TJ Maxx today and you go into the mugs section, You might find a mug or a throw pillow or some fun little knickknack with some words on it that might send something like, your vibe attracts your tribe or something like that. Now that's super new agey. But but the reality is that there's something embedded in a message like that that causes us to think, yeah, I want people around me. I want people around me who affirm me as a person who desire the same things that I do. I want to attract the type of people that I want to be around. Those people for us, they might have similar wants and likes and sentiments, and we all sort of hope to find people who identify similarly to us. It used to be in the world we lived in that tribes would indicate that people that were part of your immediate community People who lived in the same town or shared the same last name and heritage. But now in our world, with a a world where information flies across the globe in, in a split second, tribalism exists simply based on the things you like or the things that you want or the things that you desire. You can be part of an online community of marine life enthusiasts in North Dakota in the middle of winter. I don't know if you checked, there's not a lot of marine life here. I mean, there is, but not like the saltwater kind. Do people within these tribes experience unity with one another? When we share similar wants and desires and sentiments with each other, do we experience true unity? On the surface, the answer would be yes, but ultimately, no. Is something like being uh, an enthusiast about marine life that surrounds coral reefs in Australia when you live in North Dakota bad? No, with a caveat. If it's held in its proper place, it's just fine. We desire camaraderie. We long for people to get us. We want to believe that we are united with others. The easiest way to do that is to look for external markers. People who look like us, who desire the same things, 
who want what we want, who have the same sentiments, who've experienced similar life circumstances. But friends, what Jesus is praying here is a truth. And the truth is that there's only one thing that can unite us. And that's what he goes into in his prayer. Jesus, who is about to leave this world, prays that all believers would be one. And then he gives the ground or the foundation for that unity. The ground or foundation is, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So the unity that Jesus is praying for runs far deeper than simple tribal identities based on our sentiments, our wants, our desires, any external criteria that we can come up with. What that means for us is that it means that, we, that the unity that we experience as believers, as those who are joined to Christ by faith, that unity is not contingent on external or worldly criteria. If you're, so if you're here this morning and you're a student, say you're in middle school or if you're in high school or if you're in college, if you're a student, you have more in common with the retired grandmother of 12 in this room than you do with your unbelieving roommate. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you have more unity with a believing fifth grader than you do with an unbelieving mom who also has a fifth grader. This is the truth that Jesus is praying about. You may not feel like that's true. You may not, somewhere inside of you, you might even object. You say like, no, I don't have more unity with that. Like All of these external markers, those, those things are what cause me to feel united to someone someone who can empathize with me and someone who can jump into life with me and immediately have something to talk about, have a point of conversation with one another. You may not feel like that's true, but friends, here's the good news that you need to hear today and every day. Your feelings are not the source of truth. God's word is the source of truth. And so by realizing that as a believer, you can acknowledge that you are more united with another believer in Mexico or South Africa or China than you are with your unbelieving neighbor who just like you enjoys hunting and fishing and grilling out in the backyard and tinkering in the garage. What I'm proposing to you is a need for a shift in our thinking. A need for a shift in our thinking from these external markers to something far deeper that joins us together. We are people of the truth. To be a Christian is to be a person of the truth. You must affirm as a Christian that Jesus Christ is the truth. Jesus says, to his disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know my truth. And this gets quoted all the time out of context, but what he says is, and the truth will set you free. 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is is the sole determiner of how you live. Worldly assessments, what we feel when we engage with other people, these are not the source of truth. They're not the determiner of what your reality is, despite what the culture wants to communicate to you. So, devote yourself to those to whom you are truly united. Devote yourself to those to whom you are truly united. Jesus Christ builds his church in this way. Jesus Christ builds his church this way, taking the most unlikely of people and bringing them together and uniting them in ways that they could never fathom being united because they don't share the same desires, wants. They don't share the same socioeconomic class or age group. They don't have the same number of children. They don't have the same parenting flaw. They don't have any of these things in common, and yet Jesus brings them together and builds his church. Before we planted Buffalo City Church, we wrote a lot of church planting material. Um, and something that was often celebrated, um, which I regret exists, was a church planting model that targeted a specific demographic of believers. Something like a church for dock workers in Annapolis, or a church for ranchers in Montana. Friends, this type of exclusivity that's centered around external criteria is not something that should be celebrated. According to what Jesus prays here, this is not something that should be celebrated. A church that excludes people based on exterior criteria should not be celebrated. It denies the reality of what Jesus prays here. If you consider yourself to be a Christian, but you only think that you can experience unity with other Christians who are also dock workers or who are also ranchers, then you fundamentally miss the point about what Jesus came to do. He came to unite the most unlikely of people, to bring them together, creating new life in them that would unite them in a way that they could not be united by anything worldly. Jesus builds his church. He builds his church in places like Jamestown, North Dakota, by uniting the most unlikely of people. And then he sanctifies them in truth. He makes them holy. He sets them apart for his purposes wherever they are. So that they would better know that they are united with one another, becoming like he says in verse 23. Look at verse 23 with me. Knowing that they are perfectly one, just like God the Father and God the Son are united. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that they, that so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Brothers and sisters, we can't we can't say this enough. This is what Jesus chooses to pray on the eve of his crucifixion. 
This is what Jesus prays hours before going to the cross. This is how then we are to live. Believing that it is Jesus Christ that unites us and not worldly external criteria. If you think to yourself, this is, this is something that this is hard to wrap my head around. How can we understand this unity better? I think the answer is found in verse 22. Jesus says, or praise, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus says, the glory you have given me, I have given to them. This is a gift. Jesus gives a gift that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus has given us glory. Because Jesus has revealed the Father to us a perfect picture of unity. The Father and the Son, a perfect picture of unity. And Jesus revealing the oneness that he has with God the Father, that unity that he and the Father have. If we go back to verse 5, just go back up the page. I didn't read this earlier, but back up the page to verse 5 in chapter 17. Jesus prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This unity, this interconnectedness, this perfect fellowship that has never been disrupted. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Jesus gives us the same glory that he had with the Father, this unity in perfect love. Here are the implications. What are the implications of that truth? What does that mean for us in our day-to-day lives? It means simply this, that apart from Jesus Christ, you can have unity with no one. You can experience no true unity. You can have these surface-level identities, You can have a surface level want and desire, but that wax and wanes with how much sleep you got last night or what you had for dinner or if you ate breakfast this morning. Jesus has revealed true unity to us. And Jesus shows us the Father. And Jesus shows us the perfect relationship that he has with the Father. If you go all the way back to the beginning of John's Gospel, the The verse that oftentimes gets quoted out of the first 18 is verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we have seen the perfect unity that the father has with the son. And now are given as grace granted the perfect unity that they have with one another. At the end of the prologue in John's gospel, Jesus, or John writes, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right side. What has he done? He hasn't hidden him further. He's made him known. But Jesus coming, taking on flesh into the world, he has shown us who God is. He has shown us the perfect unity that exists within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then doesn't say, this is for us only. I'm sorry. He says, it's yours. I give it to you freely. 
It belongs to you. In me, it is yours. All that is mine is yours. Jesus is God. He makes the Father known to us. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And when we come to the Father through the Son, Romans 8.32, will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Yes. In Christ, all things are ours. Including this thing that Jesus prays that we would have unity with one another. There's a goal to the unity that Jesus prays for. We see that here. There are two so that statements in verse 21. You see, he says, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Here it is. So that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The unity the disciples have, the unity that we have as a church, puts on display, bears witness to the truth that is Jesus is sent from the Father, that Jesus is truly God. The world needs desperately to know who Jesus Christ is. That he was not a man that just walked the earth a couple thousand years ago that had some good moralistic teaching. They need to know that Jesus is truly God. That he died, he was buried, he rose again, and he ascended to reign over all things at the Father's right hand where he continues to make intercession for those who the Father gave to him. They need to know that truth. They don't just need to know that Jesus is their buddy who was sometime in the past and is surrounded by some weird mysticism. Jesus Christ. They need to know him and him crucified. And the unity that we have with one another, that we have been given, that we've been brought into, the unity that the Father has with the Son, gives us the opportunity to put on display who Jesus Christ is. The second place we see it, though, it's said again in verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they, may be become, that they may become perfectly one. That's the unity portion. So that the world, so that the world may know that you sent me, the Father sent the Son, and loved them even as you loved me. Our unity puts the love of God on display for the world. The, our unity gives the world insight into the love of God. If you're like, I want to show the love of God to my friends and family members. I want to show the love of God to my coworkers. Put on display the unity that God has given you with other believers who are part of your local church. This is so practical. The reason we run from this is because we don't believe it. Because we think that we can somehow separate these two ideas from one another. That we somehow can say, I can show, as an atomistic individual, I can show the love of God to the people around me and, and ignore the unity that he has given me with other believers. 
That's f- can't happen. It's false. It is that it's intimately tied together. If we genuinely want to show love for our unbelieving friends and families, members and neighbors and co-workers. It begins with how we conduct ourselves according to the unity that we have in Jesus Christ within the church. We don't get another option. This is why the understanding of unity that we have in Christ is so vital. Why believing God's word and not trusting just in our feelings or our outward assessment or what we think about what other people might think about us or how we might live or any of those things, any of those assessments that are based separate from the word of God. How can we together as God's people show the unity that we have been given freely in the person of Jesus Christ? Because our unity is how we bear witness to the love of God. When we together as a body, as a local church, display unity by loving one another despite our external criteria, we show a God who is in perfect unity with and among himself. And we show a God who is so generous that he has given us in Christ all things. We short-circuit things, though, when we hold back from people who look different from us, who act different from us, who are in different stages of life than us, who have different personality types than we do. We short-circuit things when we sinfully feel like our likes and affinities and sentiments are the primary governors of our unity. And when we hold back from one another, we become cliquish, we become exclusivists, we become elitists. But since God has graciously given us all things, including this unbreakable unity that we have with one another, wouldn't it be wrong of us to treat other believers as if God has withheld from them? Wouldn't it be wrong for us to treat other believers as if God has withheld from them? The answer is yes. What is the primary way that we tend to treat other believers as if God has withheld from them? We withhold ourselves. We're not willing to sacrifice, lay down our lives. We're not willing to compromise here or there to say, no, this is about me. We want to make ourselves the captain, the king, the grand pooba of our lives. And what we wind up doing is withholding ourselves and treating others as if God has withheld from them. But what Jesus prays here clearly indicates to us that God has not withheld himself. From anyone who is joined to Christ, he has freely and graciously given them 
all things. So the call here is to repent of your unbelief, repent of trusting your feelings, repent of setting up external criteria that you would require others to meet in order for you to spend time with them or to shake their hand on a Sunday morning to look them in the eye and say, I love you. Repent of trusting those things more than the word of God. The fact of the matter is if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've turned from your sin and clung to Christ, you have been given unity with others who are like you in this room. Turn to Christ, follow him, in generously giving of yourself to those who are joined to Christ. The first thing I want you to see this morning that Jesus prays for those who will believe that they would have unity. The second thing here that Jesus prays for, the second thing is that those who would believe would be with him. Now this isn't so dissimilar from the first thing that Jesus prays here in this section, but something that we need to note. Look at verse 24. This is the heart or the beginning, the thesis of what he prays. Father, I desire that they may also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The emphasis here is placed on that they may be with me. If someone this morning comes to you after congregational worship and says, hey, I'd like to give you a a three-month vacation. All expenses paid. I want to give you a three-month vacation. You pick the place. You pick the time. Three months. All expenses paid. You don't have to worry about anything. I'll set everything up for your itinerary. You'll see the sites. You'll meet the people. It'll be great. But, but, it can only be you. You can't take anyone with you. You can't know anyone where you're going. It just needs to be you. Would you go? Probably not. Probably not. Because vacationing isn't just about going to places. It's about sharing experiences with people that you love. And it's probably mainly about sharing experiences with people you love. The point of that is this. Sometimes we treat our Christianity like it's destination-oriented. Sometimes we treat it like we ask ourselves the question, what will heaven be like? What will heaven be like? We might hope to share the gospel with, our, with, with an unbelieving friend. And we ask them the question, how do you know you're going to heaven? They might answer the question, I don't know. And I'm not sure I have reason to want to go. In a post-Christian culture, questions about heaven may not really hold much meaning because most people, or many people now, even people who represent evangelical circles, don't really know or believe that it is real anyways. Here's what I want you to see, though. What Jesus says, what Jesus prays, is not destination-oriented. It's not about where you're going. It's about who will be there. 
What will heaven be like? I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information. But even though we don't have a clear picture on what it will be like, we do know who will be there. The thief on the cross turns to Jesus and says, remember me. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul tells the Philippians, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with, always be with the Lord. None of these examples, and this is just a sampling, none of these examples give us intimate details about where or the what, but rather the who. And here in John, in John chapter 17, Jesus prays that those who believe will be with him. Brothers and sisters, our destination is Christ. Our destination is Christ. And Jesus prays that we would be with him so that we would see the glory given to him by the Father. Because the Father loved him, loved Jesus before the foundation of the world. To come to the Father through the Son. To fully see the unity that the Son has with the Father. And to have that unity amongst ourselves. This is what it is. This is the place where we are to go. The place and what we will see. We will see unity between Father and Son. And we will know that when our eyes are fully open to that reality, we will know that that's, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Jesus is praying. To see the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The love that we have on this earth, everyone and everything that you love had a beginning. If your love for your parents, but you didn't, you love your parents, but you didn't know them before you were born. You, you love your kids, but you didn't love them before they were born. You love your spouse, but you didn't love that person before you met them. There is never a time, there is never a time where God the Father has not perfectly loved God the Son. You and I can't fathom a love for someone that has never changed. But the reality is what Jesus prays when he prays that we would be with him in that place is that we would be fully immersed in that love. It's not just pizza rolls and Oreos or even the car in the garage. Everything that Christ has, even the eternal perfect love that the Father has given him and has always belonged to him before the foundation of the world is fully yours without anything withheld. Sometimes as Christians, we wonder, does God love me? And the answer to that question needs to be, another question needs to be asked. The other question that needs to be asked is, does the Father love the Son? And the answer to that question is yes. And the Father loves the Son, and all that the Son has, He gives to you. God loves you. Look at verse 26, the last verse. 
in this passage. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Everything that Christ has is fully yours. Nothing is withheld. Everything that Christ has is yours. Nothing is withheld. And on the day when we are with Christ, we will know and realize this completely. In 1 Corinthians 13, this is the chapter on love that you probably heard at every wedding you've ever been to. Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, Jesus is praying for the face to face part of this. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Jesus prays that all who believe will be with him so they all would fully participate in the perfect unity and the perfect love that the Father and the Son share. I don't want to I want you to walk away this morning feeling fully informed about what you have in Jesus. You have unity with him and other believers. The love of God is firmly fixed upon you. A couple of things to think about before we approach the Lord's table, which is sat here this morning. Concluding thoughts. First, the unity that we have with one another in Christ is a current possession. The unity that we have in Christ is a current possession. Jesus prays that we would be one like he is one with the Father. The unity that we have with one another in this room, as those who are joined to Christ by faith, is a gift. This is not something that's earned. It's not something that we drum up. It's something that is ours. It's been given to us. We must recognize this unity as a truth, as a reality. And we must live then as those who have that unity. Living as those who are united means having a oneness one another, regardless of external, worldly, measurable criteria. Again, I'm not telling you to try to be united. I'm telling you, you are. Jesus isn't praying that we might somehow figure out how to be united. Jesus is praying that they will. We are already united. Since God graciously gives us all things, I asked this question earlier, I want you to think about it again. Since God graciously gives us all things, wouldn't it be wrong of us to treat other believers as if God has withheld from them? Again, our unity isn't contingent on our feelings. It's an objective truth that all of us who are in Christ have. Ask yourself, where is my unbelief apparent regarding the unity I've been given with other believers in the local church? The unity that we have in Christ is a current possession. The second thing is this. Christ is the reward. He is the treasure. He is the destination. Why is paradise paradise? Because Jesus is there. If we consider Psalm 
73, 25, and 26, the psalmist writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But something unique is that it's not our desire that gets us to Jesus. Consider that it's Jesus' desire that brings us to him. So he prays here in John 17 that we would be with him. It is the desire of Christ that we would be with him. So that we would see the unity that the Father and the Son share. So that we would participate fully in the love that the Father has for the Son. And that all and that all that belong to Christ would be ours as well. Final conclusion, concluding point, and then we'll move to the Lord's table. Know this, friends. The Father's love is set on you. If you're in Christ, the Father's love is set on you, and you can't imagine this kind of generosity. You can't even begin to fathom. The, the, most, the person who's been most generous with you in your life doesn't pales in comparison to how generous God has been with you. Can you imagine the immensity of this love that the Father has for you? This love is infinite for eternity past. There's no beginning. There's no, can you, you can't imagine loving anything more than your child or your parents or your spouse. Those things all had a beginning. The Father's love has never not existed for the Son. And for eternity future, the Father loves the Son. It does not waver, it does not falter, it does not wax, it does not wane. It had no beginning and it cannot end. It cannot be measured, it cannot be weighed. It is a love of an infinite, immortal, all-powerful, all-wise, unchanging God, and it is given fully to the Son, and there is so much of it that it is given to us, and you can't divide it. It's not divided up in between each and every one. Like, you get a portion, and you get a portion, and it's one out of a billion. No, it's all of it. All of the time, it's for you. It can't be divided. It's, un- it's infinite. It can't be redirected. It can't, you can't, the Father's love isn't like, it's like ah, there's a little bit less because i got to give a little bit more over here. It's unchangeable. You can't say it's contingent on the hour because it's eternal. You can't say it's undeserved because Christ is infinitely worthy. And it's freely given to you. In Christ, it's all given to you. We're going to turn our attention to the Lord's table and see again the culminating act of John's gospel portrayed before us, pictured in the elements given to us. A broken body, a perfect once and for all sacrifice to bring us into God's family. The broken body that should have been yours, the shed blood that should have been yours, set before you this morning in bread and grape juice. As you approach the table this morning, think about the the love that the Father has for you. Think about that He has not withheld anything from you and the elements that represent the Son. Broken body, shed blood, infinite 
unending, unchanging, unwavering generosity shown to you by God the Father, who has set all of his love on you. As we go to the Lord's table, remember what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In verse 29 in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians 11. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks in judgment on himself. Friends, this is not just between you and God. This is a unifying meal. Where we come and we participate together, acknowledging the unity that we have. Not the unity that we try to have, but the unity that we genuinely have in total because of Jesus Christ. The broken body shed blood for us that grants us, that gives us, that generously and freely puts the unity in our hands. So as you eat and drink, remember Christ's sacrifice and a God who did not withhold from you. Do not then withhold yourself from others. Take this, eat it, see it as a unifying event. If you're this morning and you don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't know what it means to be united with him in faith, this is not, this is not for you. This is for those who are joined to Christ by faith. If you're not sure what that means, I'd love to talk to you, but in the meantime, just, just let this opportunity pass you by. It's of extreme importance that we understand that this is for those who Jesus has set apart through his sacrifice. Parents, if you have kids in here, exercise discretion for them. If they've made a credible profession of faith, by all means, um, invite them to participate with you. If that's forthcoming, use this as an opportunity to, to share the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for them. And uh, if you're not a member here, that's okay. Approach the table. If you are part of a church in good standing and you, uh, you have a uh, you are uh, you you that, that preaches the same gospel as we do. By all means, approach the table and participate with us together, together this morning. Let me pray, and then when you feel free in your heart to approach the table, come on down, grab the elements, make your way back to the seat, and you can participate in them there. God, we thank you for the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. God, we pray now as we approach the table as we see the broken body and shed blood before us, God, would we as your people know that unity that we have? That our hearts have been redeemed, have been made new, have been turned from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. God, cause us now to recognize that what your word has said about us is in fact true. God, would you cause us also to see, to understand, to know that you have placed your love fully upon us. That it is infinite, unchanging, and all of it comes to us in Christ. Grant us the ability as we go from this place to see very clearly the unity that we have 
in order that we might not withhold ourselves from others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen.